When everything feels upside down, culture is what holds us together. It's the songs that soundtrack our morning commute and our quarantine living room dance parties, or that beckon us down to the bar to find someone to make out with. It's the shows we binge and the books we read to wind down after a hard day at work, and it's the meals we cook to remember our grandmothers. It's an excuse to get out of the house and go sit in a dark theater on a Saturday afternoon, and a litmus test for finding other people who see the world like we do. It's the thing that gives our lives meaning when it's hard to make sense of anything at all. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. Welcome to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about the wild west of culture and culture journalism in the year 2020. Think of it as your guide to understanding the arts, technology, and a shifting labor landscape through the lens of culture reporting. Hosted by us, two freelance journalists from opposite sides of the country. Hey, Emily. How's it going? Hey, Andrea. Doing okay? So today we are talking about a theme that is very near and dear to our hearts, for better and for worse. And the theme is, so you're a laid off culture journalist. It's uh, something that I think both of us and probably almost every journalist we know can relate to. And since the pandemic, pretty much like every person we know. Most people we know. And, you know, since this is a show about culture and culture journalism, it's a pretty important topic. And what was the statistic we read, um, Andrea, in the New York Times about how many journalists have lost their jobs since the pandemic hit? Yeah, it was 36,000 journalists had been either laid off, took furloughs or took pay cuts in just the first month of the coronavirus pandemic. And I hadn't heard of like... I hadn't heard numbers that big before. Um, And then there are those of us who were already laid off before the pandemic hit. Uh, When when were you first laid off, Emily? Well, the first time I was laid off was in 2011, I think. Like end of 2011, um, when Altered Zones, the Pitchfork sister site that was my first media job, got shut down. And then I managed to avoid it for a while until I think 2018 when, you know, we worked together at Vice and then I left Vice and went to the outline and then I got let go three months later. I've been freelance ever since and I think I just been through so much like over that span of time that I was just like, I can't really deal with this anymore. I need to, to just like be my own boss for a little bit. What about you? Yeah, I feel that big time. It's just, it's very much something that I think, you know, in the past decade that we've both been working has become just kind of like the norm, you know, in journalism, it's just like something you kind of like, that's always like a lurking possibility and that could strike at any moment. I mean, yeah, I got laid off from my my first gig out of college, 
I was an editorial assistant at a television trade publication called Broadcasting and Cable. I didn't know this about you. Yeah, that was, it was an it was an interesting gig. I, I I learned a lot. I had to do like a lot of like really quick turnaround reporting. Uh, it was it was a good training ground. But after after nine months, they eliminated the position, and mm. you know it was kind of like the first little like rude awakening for me that this plan I had for myself and my career is like not exactly going to be the smooth or like well-deserved road that I naively sort of had in mind. It's not like the, it's not the almost famous trajectory. I know, I know. Or, or like any, any kind of like conceit of what journalism is, you know, in the media or otherwise, or, or even for me, it's like my, my dad's a journalist and he's always been freelance, but it was just always the exception to the rule. Like it was very much I was raised with this understanding that it was like very much a personal choice for him to kind of remain a lone wolf. Hmm. That's super interesting. Yeah. Like even my dad was like, don't, don't do this. It's really hard. Get a staff job, like get that job security. And, you know, for me, it wasn't just about job security. Like I also just, I really thrive and love working in a team environment. I love collaborating, Mm -hmm. but yeah, then I, you know, I freelanced for a little bit, then I went on to work for a local newspaper in Las Vegas for several years, and saw rounds of layoffs happen. And I always kind of managed to avoid it. And the same when I started working as the West Coast editor, of noisy advice. And then in February 2019, which was like three and a half years into the job for me, like really unexpectedly and suddenly was laid off. And you know, I had missed so many rounds of layoff advice that I sort of like naively thought, like, maybe I'm okay. <laughs> I'm valuable, <laughs> you know, uh, but that wasn't the case. And what was really felt particularly brutal about that um, mm-hmm. was that we had just negotiated a really significant union contract, um, like a month yeah. or a month or two before the layoffs came down, and it was a huge victory for us. I mean, I was getting a twenty thousand dollar raise because of some pay floor adjustments they made. Mm. kind of a long a long a long overdue sort of salary match and our contract had kicked in for one day before they went and laid a bunch of us off oh so you never got to see the actual raise no man i was i've like just been adjacent to so many rounds of layoffs that i'm like trying to remember it's a lot it just feels like history just like repeats itself every single year in media um, where you can't even keep track of like which layoff happened when. Yeah, and the, and the kind of like twisted thing that I think you know may, maybe people who aren't in journalism might not understand is that when the when these layoffs happen, sometimes you know it is trimming fat or whatever, or it's like seen as sort of temporary or streamlining. But the reality is like a lot of these positions that are deemed dispensable ultimately are are pretty important to making like to producing quality work and having a publication that's thorough and accountable. And so, you know, layoffs are not, you're not just like losing people in a newsroom. It's really, it's a qualitative cutting of corners to the Mm. point where I think so many publications that I had maybe like magazines, especially that I had once envisioned myself working at many of them don't even have like full staffs anymore. Like it'll be like a full-time editor, but then you know, the entire staff below them is just contractors and freelancers. Yeah. So it's not just like verticals going away or places closing down. It's also 
publications kind of becoming shells of their former selves. Um, and I think that we see that a lot in um, culture media right now, which is having a particularly rough time. And the reason why we wanted to talk about this today, dear listener, was because since the pandemic hit, the situation has gotten, I mean, it was already really bad, but I feel like it's gotten worse than it ever was. And at the same time, as just the events of this past week have suggested, specifically in Wisconsin, you know, this is a very, very uh, chaotic time. And there is so much to cover right now, and fewer and fewer people in a position to cover it. Fewer and fewer outlets that cover certain kinds of stories. And it's kind of put this like existential monkey wrench into the work that we do, where it's kind of unclear, you know, what are our responsibilities right now, especially for people like us who, you know, came up covering like arts and entertainment. What should we be focusing on right now? And how do we even cover things when there are very few places that are even accepting pitches? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's how, how do you, how do you develop a beat and a specialty when the, you know, the jobs you once imagined yourself having or the publications you once imagined yourself working for don't even exist anymore. Totally. And there's this, I think you were saying this earlier, Andrea, but there's this sort of disruption of the traditional trajectory um, of a career in journalism where, you know, there's no longer a sense that you can just kind of work your way up through the ranks because the ranks themselves just like topple and collapse every year. But then also, you know, there's just the, the world is changing so fast and so much is going on that what do you even decide to write about when you do have a platform? So, Andrea, do you want to introduce our guest? Sure. Our guest is a freshly laid off culture journalist named Drew Millard, who Emily and I also had the pleasure of working with Advice, friend of the pod. And so Drew, Drew was laid off in April from the outline where he was an editor after about two years. And we thought he'd be a great guest to come on and, and talk about his experiences as far as getting laid off during a pandemic and how he's making sense of this time. Drew, welcome to the show. <laughs> Uh, I would like to clarify that I am actually the boyfriend of the pod. I'm not your boyfriend, but I am Emily. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say full disclosure, we're keeping things kind of close to home today and featuring my partner. Drew is my partner. Um, he will probably appear on subsequent episodes from time to time as well. So, Drew, you were one of thousands of journalists who lost their job when the coronavirus hit. And if it's not too traumatic to talk about this, can you walk us through what happened? Like, what was your job like when at the outline um, where you worked as a features editor before or leading up to the pandemic hitting? And how did it change um, in March? I mean, when you're a staffer at a small website, uh, which the outline was, you kind of end up having to write about everything. 
like when prior to coronavirus, it was the Democratic primary. And so uh, everyone, including me, sort of became like a politics expert. And then when coronavirus hit, we all became like amateur diseaseologists, I believe the term is. And so like, I... Epidemiologists? That's what I said. Um, So like, I had been like writing about the coronavirus, not from like a science angle, but I was sort of writing from like a social angle of like, dealing with the anxiety, feeling unproductive, how golf was getting like randomly really big because of the coronavirus. You know, it was sort of this thing where one day in early April, it was a Friday, as these days tend to be, we, we being the staff, were summoned to a phone call where we were informed that the outline was no more and that we were all being laid off. Um, I can't like, you know, say a ton about specifics because I signed an NDA um, as one does. But I mean, yeah, like when I got laid off, it didn't necessarily come out of nowhere, but that doesn't make it any better. Like if you see a car coming and you're standing in the middle of the street and you're like, Oh, I might get hit by that car. Like getting hit by the car, it still sucks. And yeah, I mean like, I don't know for like a month, I just like was like, wow, I I can't believe that happened. I had never been laid off before. The one other staff job I'd had was at Vice Media, and I quit on my own volition, like maybe a year, year and a half before they started laying a bunch of people off. Um, and so, yeah, and it was it was really tough. I mean, yeah, like I was laid off or lost my job two years ago, and I still experience like emotional repercussions of it even today it's getting better but this kind of thing can take you years maybe for some people even like decades to like fully bounce back from emotionally and so you know ideally it's the kind of thing that just happens once a decade or something But in media right now, it happens so frequently that you just have to wonder, like, how much trauma is, like, invading your brain? And not to mention also, like, just frequent scandals and the stress of reporting online, of being, like, harassed by people online. Like, there's a lot. It's a lot that builds up over time. No, totally. I think it's so so that people don't think we're just being precious here I mean one thing I think that's important to understand is that to do your job well as a journalist like you have to be invested in your work in your team in your publication you know whether you're an editor or reporter or critic if you're good at your job if you love your job this isn't just a thing you clock in and out of every day you know that's not to say like healthy boundaries aren't important but it feels like getting broken up with really suddenly I guess Mm-hmm. you know, and unexpectedly. And it just really, it, it makes you feel disposable. 
Totally. And then it's also hard when like, I mean, I'm sure this applies to other fields of journalism, but in culture journalism, it also sometimes makes it feel like the media world use like the thing you write about itself as disposable, which is really upsetting, if that makes sense. 100%. Yeah. It like existentially throws you for a loop. And I was I was like a freelance writer during the great layoffening of uh, a couple of years ago when everybody laid everybody off. And, you know, just even being a freelancer watching that happen, I was just like, well, why would I try to get a staff job? Like, I'm just going to get laid off. Um, And Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I think that it is like, it is very similar to a breakup. Like, you're just like, I will never love again. I will never devote myself to a for-profit company again because I will get screwed over. And like, that's true. You will get screwed over if you ever work for a for-profit company. But like, you know, you gotta, you gotta try if you're reporting the news. And I, as we kind of mentioned earlier, I think the pandemic has also thrown the culture industry itself upside down in many ways. And not only is there this feeling of urgency of, you know, well, one, I have to make a living. I have to keep doing stuff, writing about stuff. But two, what is the most helpful thing for me to cover right now? And three, I don't know who's going to even want me to cover things for them because so few people are accepting pitches. Um, It just creates this sort of confusion of priorities and it kind of like, I'd say it kind of made me reconsider my priorities and, you know, the things that matter to me. Like how so? Like what? Well, when the pandemic first started, the first area where I really felt it hit close to home was in the music industry, where there was that big news in March, like South by Southwest is going to be canceled. Then you start hearing about other festivals canceling this year. You hear about venues shutting down. And there's a sense that like, oh, all of, you know, this entire community that I've been covering for like a decade is now like basically unable to function the way that it used to. Um, And so initially my response was like, I need to start writing about this stuff. And I know, Andrea, you did a lot of this work too. For me, it took the form of like, writing about these kind of new musicians unions that were coming about and like other like forms of organizing that were emerging um, in the underground and independent music community that I hadn't really seen before. But yeah, like Andrea, how did your instincts kind of shift when this all went down? Hmm. I don't know if they shifted almost so much as they kind of locked in. Like, the the second that I even heard rumors about South by getting canceled, I just immediately just started finding musicians that were posting about it and talking to them because I knew publications would want something about it. So I found there was a ton of actually, like, great stories and threads to pull. And it was weird because for the I'd say for the first month of the pandemic, I actually was busier than I had been in, like, the whole first year I'd been freelancing. In, in a weird way, I, was, I wasn't like, this is great. Obviously, it's horrible. But, you know, I, I made decent money. And more than that, I was writing 
like three news pieces a week and these like solid features sort of chasing these stories. And, you know, but what we didn't see at the time was, you know, that this was going to have ripple effects far beyond the music industry. I kind of had felt like, oh, cool. I think I found a good labor slash business slash music industry beat that I can, you know, really roll up my sleeves and dig back into here because I I have a lot of background in that as well. And then the ripple effects started to hit media and then all the work dried up. And that, and that's what was scary was because it wasn't, these stories were still very much out there. You know, it was like, it was like having a conversation that just gets cut off mid sentence because suddenly there was no more budget. And this, this was like kind of advocacy work that needed to be done and voices that needed to be heard about what people were experiencing. And it was, again, it, it, you know, to then also liken it to what we were talking about with getting laid off before it was just this sense of like, they're, they're being disposable and dispensable. So it's not just us as journalists, but it's like the stories that we're wanting to cover are now seen as dispensable. That really kind of shook me. And the first little bit after get, getting laid off, I kind of experienced both of those feelings simultaneously. Like I was kind of like, well, I was a features editor and I edited features and I wrote a bunch of stuff. And, you know, before that, I was like a features writer and also an editor and like also would write like opinion things. And now that I've been laid off, like, what am I like? What do I do? Like, I used to write about music, but, you know, two years working at a non-music publication has really like taken my finger off the pulse. And also I'm like 31. So like what credibility do I have, you know, writing about music that like 16 year olds listen to? Like, I'll just be like that fucking Steve Buscemi 30 rock meme. And so I was like, well, that's out. And then also like, yeah, like I was like, yeah, there, it doesn't seem like any story matters to people who have control of budgets. And it's also like not a good time to branch out into something new necessarily either yeah well i guess i guess it could be but it's like an intimidating time to branch out to something new um it seems like the only thing that journalists are being rewarded for financially right now is becoming a reactionary who says that cancel culture isn't real or that we need to lock up protesters or something which is like a really alarming media trend to me you mean like in mainstream media? Yeah, like Andrew Sullivan uh, just today on his uh, email newsletter basically wrote a thing that was like, listen, guys, I care about law and order. I'm going to vote for the political party that puts protesters in jail. Mm. And like Matt Taibbi, too. Like, what the fuck happened to that guy? <laughs> and it just, yeah, it just seems like Either there are journalists who just like always sucked and I was too young to realize it, which is probably true, or journalists who are like really cynical and like, well, uh, like reactionaries will give me money if I say things they like, so I'm just going to do it. But it's like a really alarming thing to watch happen. Maybe that perspective, though, also is like that of someone who cannot fully relate to the reason why people are protesting in the first place. 
meaning like they're people who are not experiencing the same degree of like precarity as the rest and they they can't like empathize with the suffering of others and i think that also like i think it is notable that there is a correlation between yeah the folks who post those types of opinions on the internet and the fact that they are doing so on platforms where their readers directly pay them because you know if you have a lot of disposable money to be like slinging around on like you know patreon or whatever you probably are not in like a precarious economic situation or are probably like you know, sort of removed from like what's actually going on in the world. I, I see what you mean. Um, and I, I guess there's like ways in which people who end up doing the self-publishing thing can kind of like create an insulation against themselves getting canceled, which you don't have when you're like working for a traditional media outlet. I should clarify, this podcast doesn't do this, and uh, no one who gives money to you guys sucks. Everyone who gives money to us is a wonderful person. Let's make that clear. actually someone whose beat has changed quite a few times since you started writing you know like you moved to New York um originally because you wanted to become a music blogger you became a music blogger you worked for noisy for a while which is kind of how we all know each other and you also kind of you went freelance or you you pivoted to working for vice and kind of moved a little bit away from traditional music journalism, during which time you wrote about Larry Flint, which is a really cool piece. And oh, thank you. Yeah, and and kind of like various and sundry topics. Um, you also worked on your dad's political campaign at one point, and you got really into writing about politics, specifically North Carolina politics. Um, and you're kind of like omnivorous when it comes to what you've written about like so since the pandemic and since getting laid off um how have your priorities shifted as a writer i mean first off i have kind of abandoned the idea of writing on the internet why is that it's not because i'm like above it or anything i just feel like it's really hard to like convince people to give me money to write things you know, like you email somebody, they don't get back to you, and then they do get back to you, and then you kind of moved on to another idea. Breaking back into freelancing, like, really fucking sucks. And so I'm sort of trying to work on something where you, like, you only have to have your pitch land once in order to get paid for a few months' worth of, like, living income um can you be more specific yeah did you know that before uh the internet they would like print blog posts out and 
uh, sell them in like bound format, uh, sometimes with hard or soft covers. Yes, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about books. I think so. <laughs> I've never heard that word though. Um, but I'm trying to do like a one of those. It's like basically the process of doing of pitching one is doing like ten times the amount of work uh, that it would take to research and write a pitch, and then I don't know what happens after they actually buy the book. I'm kind of scared to learn. I think I have to write it though. I guess like to put a more positive pair of sunglasses on that, I was like, well. Breaking back into freelancing is very hard, so I might as well try this, like, equally hard but more exciting to me thing and see if it works out. And I'm almost done with my proposal. Almost. And then, uh, yeah, who knows? Maybe it'll sell. We very much hope it does. Um, and Thank you. You also wrote a piece... Um, well, you've developed several new hobbies. I think um, you can call it a habit. <laughs> One of them was a hobby, which you already had, but you got more into, which was playing golf. Um, another one was playing online poker. And you actually did write a piece about it for online journalism, which was called How Online Poker Became My Pandemic Self-Care. And it was for GQ. Why do you think you gravitated to poker during this time? Number one, because I'm delusional. And number two, I i mean, I was like, man, it's going to be so hard to break into freelancing again. I better get into this other thing that's way harder and basically impossible to make money at and uh, just try to learn how to do that. Like, I'd never actually played poker before. I'd gotten laid off. And then I was just like, well, this seems fun. Maybe I'm secretly really good at it and I will make a million dollars. And it turns out I am not secretly good at it. I'm kind of bad, but it was actually, it was actually really fun. And as I was like getting really into it, I was like reading books on the internet about like kind of like poker strategy and things like that. And as as I was kind of like organically getting really into it, I learned about a book that was coming out called uh, The Biggest Bluff by a New Yorker writer named Maria Konnikova, who set out to write a book about being a poker player because she wanted to learn how luck worked. And she accidentally became a professional poker player like she got so good at poker that she took like a year off from writing and played the professional circuit and i mean the book is just like fascinating and it really talks about how what like good poker players are both incredibly superstitious but also don't believe in luck at all and which is like a very funny combination like they'll wear the same shirt every day in a tournament if they do well in one game and then at the same time they will like know the exact odds of themselves winning a hand anytime they get like dealt the hand 
And like, yeah, I mean, like professional poker players are crazy people. And she got to get this really intimate look at these crazy people. Like professional poker players are almost like warrior monks, but they play poker. What is the, you know, your piece talks about the sort of life wisdom that she gleans from the game or wisdom about how to deal with the cards that life hands you. What did you learn from reading her book? This sounds like corny to say, but there's just so much about like poker that we have absorbed into our lexicon that it's kind of shocking. Like both of you probably have used the phrase play the hand you're dealt like this week, you know? And, you know, it's just like, this expression but if you kind of think deeply about poker like that's like such a weighted phrase like when you receive a pair of cards in texas hold'em you have to immediately say okay are these good cards are these bad cards what are the what's the likelihood that the other people have like better cards than me and then you have to sort of like act in a way that is reflective of the cards you have well what did you learn okay from okay playing online poker okay um i think i became a better decision maker um making decisions has never been like my strong suit and through essentially like putting my own money on the line and saying well if i make dumb decisions here i'm going to lose this like 50 cents or whatever and then immediately putting myself in this situation where I had to think critically in a very short period of time. It's basically like doing push-ups for the parts of your brain that do logic. And I found that, you know, very helpful. And I also kind of found that like, you know, so much of poker is actually patience. Like, if you get dealt a shitty hand, you don't play it. You, like, sit down and or you, like, sit out and wait for the next hand and maybe that one's better. Or maybe, like, you know, circumstances have changed and you've decided that you can sort of bluff your way through or whatever. And I found that very helpful, like, knowing that, like, if you give it enough time, things generally suck less if they suck right now. And, you know, thinking about like getting laid off in that way, I found that to be very helpful, um, you know, especially as I am like, you know, trying this new scary thing, which is like writing a book proposal. And, you know, like so much of like why I've been like anxious or afraid of writing this book proposal is like, oh, well, you know, the fact that I got laid off means that I suck and that nothing is ever going to work out again. And like, you know, I'm not quote unquote worthy of like, you know, being able to write a book. And then, yeah, like playing poker really reminded me like one shitty thing happening, such as like, you know, you losing a big hand that has actually no bearing on what's going to happen in the future. Like, Events are not always necessarily linked. Um, mm. Like me losing 
$5 on a hand or something has no bearing on whether I will, you know, win $0 on the hand after or win $20 on the next hand. And the problem psychologically for a lot of people when they experience big setbacks is that they extrapolate from that setback to the future. And they say, oh, well, this is always going to happen. So why do, why do I even bother? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, that seems like a really valuable takeaway, too, because like what we were saying earlier about how the sort of career track, I think a lot of journalists of maybe like the generation before us were used to that being gone and it just sort of being this this kind of chaotic wild west, you know, that that's sort of the silver lining to it, too. Like, while we don't necessarily like know where our next gig is going to come from or if we're going to be able to find staff jobs or if it's actually maybe like better for our work and our finances to remain freelancers it's great to look at it as whatever happened in the past isn't going to stop you from continuing to move forward by your own momentum or, or you know playing your next move if that's if that's what you believe in and the direction you're steering yourself in and also like you know, even the the phenomenon of like bluffing in poker, uh, you know, if we like extrapolate that to like getting a good hand in poker is the same thing as getting a, a full-time job or like a good freelance assignment, you can still like fuck it up and lose the hand or write a bad article or whatever. But also at the same time, if you have like terrible cards, you can still win uh, either through luck or just through kind of like the skill with which you play those cards and kind of like place your bets in ways that indicate to people that you, you know, may have better cards than you actually do. And it, it's the exact same thing in like freelancing. Like, even if you like, you know, get laid off, you can still start from like, you know, this crappy situation and kind of look at the landscape and say, well, I'm, I may not be able to get a job right now if you're me, uh, but like, you know, maybe there are other things I can do. Maybe I can start a Substack or write a book proposal. Start a Substack podcast. Yeah. Like we've done. Yeah. Or be a guest on a podcast. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, in some ways, um, from a culture journalism perspective, this time sort of reminds me of about 10 years ago, maybe a little more than 10 years ago, when when I first got into the music journalism game. And it was, a, it was right after the um, financial meltdown of 2008, and there was very little hope. I had very little ambitions or like, pretensions that I would be able to get a staff job somewhere felt like this industry was this thing that was closed to me. And, you know, I don't know how to break into it. So I'm just going to do my own thing. And I responded to this by starting my first blog. It used to be called Visitation Rights. It was on a, it was a blog spot. And, you know, becoming involved in this community of other people who had decided to do the same thing. And that was really, really fun. I'd say it was probably like the most fun time in my entire career. And now we're kind of back to that moment again, in a way. 
And there are some other complicating factors where it's like not exactly the same because back then we didn't know how the effect that social media, for example, was going to have on the publishing industry. But there's sort of this silver lining where I'm seeing all these people around me responding to the situation by starting their own platforms. Um, and I guess that's kind of what Andrea and I are doing too here. And that's cool. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> we don't know exactly how it's going to pan out for everybody, but it's nice to see people adapting. And there are people who are also starting like worker collective publications. That's really exciting. People adapt and they try new things. And I think it's cool to do your own thing rather than just like work for a corporation. Uh, I think that, you know, there are some people who are really finding their voices right now. Um, you know, I'm thinking about Zachary Lopez, the music writer slash uh, lead singer of a band called Publicist UK, who has a substack called Abundant Living that is just like the absolute best, you know, writing about like punk and post-punk and metal and all these genres of music that I don't know a ton about, um, except from what Zach tells me. And like, you know, I read that and I'm like, damn, like Zach was born to fucking Substack, man. And like, I think that you guys are also finding your voice as podcasters. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's very early stages. Um, we're trying. I mean, yeah. And, and Zach is someone who just has this incredible voice that quite frankly, in the context of like traditional news media can kind of be flattened through the editing process, but he's got like a Lester Bangs vibe or something like he's got moxie. What Emily's saying mm -hmm. is Zach, if you're listening, she'd like you to come on the podcast. Yeah, we'd love to have you, Zach. You're great. And that that's what's funny, right? It's like the flip of this feeling of, of you know, all these cuts and reductions and staff and not having a place to put your work it really forces you to kind of like distill down what you're doing and why and whether you want to be doing it and ultimately you know for those of us that are still sticking with it in these trying times you know it has nothing to do with what publication you write for or how much you're getting paid i mean it matters a little bit obviously but you know, whatever these external structures that we've gotten used to and we saw like our careers kind of be like incumbent upon. Ultimately, it's like, what what stories do you want to tell? Like, what do you think needs to be said? And then you kind of end up reverse engineering it, which I think is what you're seeing happen right now a lot, with a lot of a lot of our peers and ourselves. How do you mean? Okay, so, so how can I keep doing this? I think this is important mm -hmm. regardless of paycheck or clout or publication or status? How do I keep telling these stories? How do I make that work for me in a functional way? And, you know, luckily there are platforms like Substack and there's blogs, um, there's podcasts. There's a million different ways you can do it if you really want to be doing it. And frankly, it's kind of a good filter that way because it's the people that are still doing it despite all of this. Those are, that's the stuff that's really worthwhile, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, I mean, that's why I started an OnlyFans. <laughs> uh, you can find me on OnlyFans at Caroline Calloway. It's spicy content, guys. Not not for not for the faint of eyes. I read classic books in the <laughs> nude. Whoa. 
Yeah, and it's like Emily. We, that's what I do in the den all day. When I'm not around. No, just when you're in the other room. <laughs> I thought you were just playing video games. No, no, I just put the video game noises on to cover up the <laughs> sounds of me reading classic <laughs> books. Another thing that I've been thinking about is that obviously I, you know, when I became an adult, I needed to find a way to make a living. But I didn't get into this to succeed in a corporate context. I got into it originally because I love music and I loved underground culture and I felt like I wanted to like support artists. And somewhere along the way, I think especially since this stuff became more widely covered on mainstream outlets, you start sort of like falling into the mindset of like capitalism and and thinking of like journalism in terms of things like clout and making money and prestige, which it was, you know, the whole thing was supposed to be the opposite of that in the first place. It was supposed to be rejection of that. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, kind of your era of music blogging, it was all about just like, check out this cool band. And then when companies started kind of being like, oh, maybe we can make money off this, it came, it became more about like picking horses, like, you know, like Pitchfork writing about clap your hands, say yeah. And then them being on tour with the national and more people coming to see clap your hands, say yeah, than the national because they had gotten a 10 from Pitchfork. And then somehow, and I'm not like calling out Pitchfork and particular uh they do a really good job of especially covering underground music but that is sort of like evolved into uh, a mandate yeah it switches from picking horses to writing about the horses that like the internet through crowd brain picked collectively you know like writing about like fucking drake which is the thing that i used to do a lot but because i like drake and because when you wrote about Drake, you know, like five years ago, like your website got a bunch of traffic. And, you know, now I've been doing a lot of soul searching and looking back and I'm like, did I actually like Drake? Or did I just tell myself I like Drake because I knew that if I wrote about it, I would get a bunch of traffic. Yeah, it's a super confusing thing. I'm not really someone who ever did write about the Drakes of the world very much, but I have been thinking about this, like, why am I constitutionally always drawn to the thing that is, like, more underground and less likely to fall into that cycle of easy hype on the internet? No, I can do it. I I can do it. But the internet and traffic-based models of journalism create a situation where the things that it's like safer if you like the things that are more mass. Totally. I felt, I feel like I felt, I felt my sort of spark get like deadened by that for a few years actually, because I'm, I'm, I'm the same mm-hmm. as you in that sense, Emily. Like the stuff that I was drawn to or found interesting was not like what was going to get a million clicks and draw the biggest crap. Mm-hmm. And when they did, it was always really interesting what would, but it was always a surprise. And unfortunately like let that, make me like sort of feel inadequate in the past. Mm-hmm. I, I feel that. What's really interesting is that, you know, flash forward a few years and a few life changes and 
now, now that's the stuff I stand by. And now that I'm doing a lot more of that without anyone's, you know, without the permission or without like the, the correlating clicks or numbers to like validate or invalidate it. I'm thrilled at seeing that there's real appetites for that kind of the stuff that I'm interested in, or that's more underground or that feels more worthwhile Mm. to me. And it's a lot of it is about just doing it and believing in in the value that you, you ascribe to it personally and people will come, you know, I think so. And, And this is something that I'm sure artists think about right now as well. A lot. I mean, they're getting it super hard. They can't play music and make money anymore. And then their stuff, I don't know, hoping that people will watch their live stream or hoping that people stream on Spotify for fraction of a penny per stream. That's super rough. Just like putting yourself out there in the internet marketplace when the stuff that you're putting out into the world is, you know, you're essentially putting yourself out into the world. But as a a journalist, I'm torn right now between figuring out whether the best way that I can kind of support underground music is through writing about individual artists or writing about the bigger systemic issues that are affecting everybody. There is an appetite for that stuff, Andrea, but I don't know if traditional journalism, traditional music journalism is like the site for it anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I struggle with that too. And I, I don't really know that they're mutually exclusive. I don't think so. But I also don't, I, I, I also know that it's like very hard to place a story right now about an unknown artist. Right, right. So I think it's cool that people are starting alternative spaces for talking about this stuff. Zach Lopez, Larry Fitzmaurice started Last Donut of the Night and Dan Ozzy's blog, like all these people kind of um, starting these taste-specific, genre-specific-ish blogs brings me back to the old days, and it's cool. What's cool about it is that it's no longer sort of like voices behind, masked by a publication whose direction and authority and resources might shift at any given time. Like you are subscribing to these people's platforms because like you really want to know what Dan Ozzy's take is on something. And the, there's inherent value to that that really gets to shine because of these platforms. And I think also like as a music fan, it's a lot easier to find good shit by just being like, who is like one person that has good music taste and also writes about the music they like rather than going to, you know, some website and just like trying to click on every story about music and being like, do I like this? Do I like this? Do I like this? I mean, also as a music fan, like, you know, and I I call myself a music fan at this point because I haven't written about music since like, November, so I've lost my music writer <laughs> license. Um, it's lapsed. But part of what is fun about being a music fan is like hearing a song that's so good that you're like, holy shit, I have to know everything about this. And as a lazy person, it's really great to not have to do that work myself. Um, but you know, like I'm thinking of like Alphonse Pierre at Pitchfork, he's not only a great writer, but he has like very good taste. And like, if he says like, 
hey, this song is good, then I'm like, oh, shit, I better listen to that. Like, that's how I found out about Chef G uh, is through Alphonse's writing. And Chef G is like my favorite artist right now. And also the difference is that like having musical discovery dependent on algorithms obviously makes it harder to like find out about things that you might really be into. They're supposed to be designed to expose you to things that you would be into. But I think that the human curatorial touch is super important. If you're just like using Twitter and like viral articles on Twitter to find out about music, like probably the person blogging about your potential favorite new artist is going to like tweet it and get like one retweet and then you'll never even see it. With something like a Substack, you know, there are uh, gated like Facebook communities around different kinds of music fandom, um, similar things going on on Discord. It's, it's this more intentional thing where you arrive to the source where you'll discover something that you'll probably like. Similar to, you know, I used to go to the record store to talk to the specific record store clerk who knew everything and I trusted their taste and they would always give me something that I, I was going to like. Similar to picking up magazines back in the day where maybe the kind of shiniest thing was on the cover, but the sort of place where things really came alive were when you opened the book and there was these front of book stories about more obscure things that journalists would sort of sneak in. It's sort of like how it's Substack or a Patreon or whatever, if you're signed up, you're gonna, you're gonna get it all because you chose that person as a curator. Totally. To your point, context is what's so important and understanding where the music sits, whether it's in an album, in an artist catalog, in a scene. As a music fan, as someone who's been voraciously consuming music since I could, like, you know, talk, that's really valuable for me. Otherwise, it's, it's, you know, it's like something that you're hearing in the background at a grocery store or like a scented candle or something, you know? getting into our advice section which comes from our former colleague like I said for Emily's case uh current colleague Leslie Horn who is the editorial director of Vice Culture Leslie writes in this industry is so full of grief how do you find the motivation to continue on when your resume is a graveyard of dead websites or sites that have become a shell of their former selves you know, so just something like, just a really light question from Leslie. <laughs> this one, like, really hit me hard when she wrote it to me. It really is so full of grief. I mean, like, I... You most recently experienced industry grief. I mean, something that really has helped me personally is going to therapy. <laughs> if you can afford to. If you can afford to. But... You know, for me, like, a lot of it is kind of like figuring out how to retain my passion while also kind of like telling myself over and over again, like, I'm not the place where I work at. And that's like a really hard thing to do as a journalist, because like, 
working on a desk or in a small at a small website it's almost like being in a band or something you know you just gotta like be like okay i'm not in uh minor threat my band slash my desk is not my life i'm in like spoon like it seems like the guys in spoon are just like yeah my job is being in spoon but i i'm not a spoon i'm i'm myself that doesn't mean the spoon isn't good but it means that they have like found like an emotional balance. Andrea, how do you find the motivation to continue on when your resume is a graveyard of dead websites? Or sites that have become a shell of their former selves. Um, what you said, Drew, really resonates with me too. I, the places I have worked for are not my work. My work is my work. And I'm very proud of most everything that I've done. And so, and I'm, I'm proud of my resume too. My work speaks for me more than the names of the places that I've worked for. I mean, that stuff will help you get a foot in the door. But ultimately, it is the things I've published with my name on them that reminds me why I'm doing this in the first place. You know, nobody's doing this for the money or for the jobs. Like, as long as there are stories to be told that I care about, I'm going to be doing this. And I, that's the one thing I believe in and that has never wavered. I know it sounds corny. Mm. but I can't, I can't not do this. Mm. No publication closing or layoff or bleak outlook of an industry is going to ever stop me from doing that. Yeah. I think it's important in some ways to keep the focus on the work and the topics that you care about themselves, as opposed to the industry or the, the, week-to-week goings-on in the industry and connect with the reasons why you care about those things. It's really easy to get caught up in the play-by-play. I don't want to like brag like I figured out the answer to this question, but I'd say connecting with people because the people don't go away or most of the people don't go away. Mm. Um, And connecting with the people who you've maybe known for a long time doing this work and who may be experiencing what you're experiencing and who see the world like you do or like can call something bullshit when it's bullshit. That's been really helpful and connecting with like culture itself and listening to lots of music and feeling your emotions. It sounds cheesy, but just sort of remembering why you got into this in the first place, the values that drove you to get into this. I think that's really important. And yeah, I don't know. Staying off the internet sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point, Emily. Like, I think the people above all is really what it's about. Like being able to like have the kind of conversations that the three of us have been having or like working on with you on this podcast has been so rewarding. I mean, I found also that like when I have been on staff for the past 10 years at various publications, I have for one reason or another found myself to be kind of isolated or siloed or like the only person on a certain beat or in a certain location. Mm. And it hasn't always like been as like rewarding as for example, like working shoulder to shoulder with you on a story or on the podcast or working with former noisy editor Kyle Kramer on a sorted project. 
those are the things that keep me excited and that keep me feeling motivated, like regardless of whether I'm on staff or I'm like working out of my bedroom, you know? Well, Kyle Kyle is a good example because er, Kyle discovered his own relationship with like a new relationship with journalism where his main gig now is working outside for like national parks and stuff. I believe Kyle currently works for the Los Angeles Parks Department. He does. But then he still writes from time to time. And when he does, it's amazing. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. My, one of my favorite things that I published as the features editor of the outline was something by Kyle, actually. And it was, I mean, it was like pulling teeth to convince him to write it. Because he was like, no, nah, man, I'm a park ranger now. I'm saving the earth. But then he did it and he got really into it and he just wrote like the best thing that's ever been written, like better than the Bible. Yeah, maybe, maybe the trick is honestly, yeah, just being like writing is my passion. I don't need to write. I want to write. Uh, And not in like a lying to yourself way, but in like a real way. You know, if you have to get a side job that is not in journalism, that's kind of great in some ways, or even a main job that is not in journalism um, can be great because you're not caught up in like the bad stuff. You're only... Yeah, you're not caught up in the clicks. You're not beholden to the clicks. Mm-hmm. Just the good ideas. Well, on that note, um, Drew, thanks for coming on this show. You're welcome. I literally had to. <laughs> That's not <laughs> Andrea, thank you for the wonderful conversation. Likewise, always a pleasure talking to both of you guys. And we'll see you next week. That's it for our show. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by me, Andrea Dominic, and my co-host, Emily Friedlander. Our music was composed by Mark Donica. Special thanks to our guest, Drew Millard. For links to his work, socials, and more episodes, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And be sure to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.